All right, good morning. Go ahead and open your Bibles up to John chapter 8. We're going to be looking at John 8, verses 12 through 30. On Monday night, I got the type of message that I, I hate getting these types of messages. It's the type of message that is vague, but seems really serious. You've probably gotten messages like this, uh, you, or you've, you've received this, especially like from your parents when you're younger, we need to talk. And you're just like, oh no. And instantly, even if you've done nothing wrong, your brain starts going like a million miles an hour of like, okay, what have I done? Okay, do I need to, did something happen? And as a pastor, I, some, I get a lot of these text messages of like, hey, pastor, could we talk? And I'm like, yeah, and usually before I would just be like, yes, absolutely, and, and just let my mind go wild. And since then, I've gotten to the point where I'm like, yes, we can. Can you tell me what this is about? Just so I can be prepared a little bit beforehand, because what my mind can come up with 99 times out of 100 is way worse than what is actually happening. But the text message I got, it was actually a Facebook message, and, and it was a local pastor, and he said, hey, can you please give me a call um, as soon as you're able, time sensitive? And I'm like, okay, what's going on? And my mind, and Hannah's not at home, and, and this guy is also the chaplain for a couple local uh, police departments, including the state police, and I'm just like, okay, does he know something because of his in involvement with the police? Is he letting me know that I'm about to have to make a phone call to someone in our church? And the whole time I'm trying to keep my thoughts captive, but I give him a call. Uh, he doesn't answer. And then he calls me back in a few minutes later, and, and he talked to me, and it was bad news. Uh, he shared with me that he was doing the funeral for a state police officer who had passed away earlier in the week. And because he was doing it, he had no one to do the music, and he was just reaching out. He's like, Stephen, any chance you could come and play music at this funeral? And I said, absolutely, I can rearrange my schedule. I had to cancel and, and change some meetings, but um, yeah, I'll be there. And I was talking to him, and this was not, it doesn't seem a, to be a believing family. A young, uh, young man with uh, teenage children, uh, a wife, and the widow asked the Dennis, the Augustine, who a uh, pastor at Steamtown, give us hope. Not, not Christians. They wanted a Christian service, but they asked, can you just give us hope in this moment? And going there, we have something that we could give, Dennis and myself, we had things that we could do. The songs that I picked were songs that talked about hope. It's a song we'll even sing later in our service, Glory in the Darkest Place. But I will be honest and say it was one of the most hopeless ceremonies I've ever been to. And I've been to funerals for children. And this funeral, there was just everything that people were talking about when they would come up and share things. It was like they were grasping at something. Like, maybe this is what gives meaning. Maybe this is what will offer hope right now. Now, thankfully, Dennis did offer true hope. But I was just looking, and, and the whole ceremony, and even watching the, the 
things that the state police did. Um, I was there from 9.30 until 12.30, and the entire time there was something happening with the state police or doing different things. This wasn't the viewing. This was all funeral. But I kept on thinking about her request. Give us, show us hope. That's the cry of all of humanity. Since the fall, Since we were separated from God, the cry of humanity is, give us hope. Show us something that this is not all meaningless. This morning, we're going to look and find that hope. Now, my my goal is that this will be both very practical, but also very personal for you. And so I I did this little self-evaluation tool that you have in your handout that you can work on. And and if you're looking at your handout, you have this this, uh, four squares next to each other. And above the columns, so the first column is in Christ, and the next column is without Christ. On the rows, the top row, you have hopeful On the bottom, hopeless. So you can think of these four different quadrants as four different types of people. You have those who are hopeful in Christ. You have some who are hopeful without Christ. You have some who are hopeless in Christ. And you have some who are hopeless without Christ. And here's what I want to ask you real quick. You don't have to write it down, but just... Think about yourself as you feel right now. We talk about this Advent season, Christmas. We talk about hope. But how often is Christmas something that brings up the most pain, the most sense of loss? So I want you to look at this graph. Where would you put yourself right now? We're going to address each one of these boxes as we go through this passage. But right now, where would you put yourself The big idea this morning is that Christ's light gives hope in the darkness for all who follow him. Christ's light gives hope in the darkness for all who follow him. So let's go into our passage right now. And at the very beginning, basically we have these two paragraphs. And the two paragraphs actually parallel each other almost exactly in their format. That you have questions at the same spot, you have statements, you have all of these things. But the first one, what we have is this debate between Jesus and the Pharisees. So let's look at verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When we think about statements of hope, you can't do better than that statement right there. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. One of the themes in John that we've been talking about is who is Jesus? All of the Gospels answer that question, but one of the unique ways that John answers that question is John has all of these I am statements. We have seven statements that have I am, and then he adds a predicate, I am the light, I am the living water. He he fills, fills the sentence, 
But then also throughout all of John, there's many times where Jesus just says, I am. Because what John is showing is that Jesus is God. But Jesus, the reason that this offers hope is because of where we are, that we are in darkness. We are children of darkness. But this is where Christ's statement comes in. And we can look at Christ's statement, this first verse, and we can divide it into three parts. The first part is the reality. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Now here's the deal with reality. Nothing in humanity, nothing in history can change the truth of that statement. It doesn't matter how you interact with that statement. It doesn't matter if you believe that statement. It is true. Just like the first three parts of the gospel where we talk about who God is. We talk about man's problem. We talk about what Christ has done. All of those are universally true. It does not make a difference whether you're a Christian or not. These things are true. Christ starts with that, that, that declaration, that reality. I am the light of the world. Now, when he makes that statement, there's an illusion that he's using. If you remember, a couple weeks back, we talked about Jesus and that this Feast of Booths. So if you go back to the beginning of chapter 7, Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. Now, in that feast, there were different things that happened, different theatrical elements to remind the people of what God had done. One of them we've already gone through was the water ceremony, where they would get the water and they would pour it out and they would remember what God had done in providing water in the desert. It was also a prayer that God would continue bringing them water. And what does Jesus say after that happens? All who are thirsty, come to me. All you who thirst, come to me, and I will give you living water. I will give you water. I will give you satisfaction. Jesus used what was happening in that moment. Now, last week, we've already addressed this, and we're not going to go into it, that I think that after verse 52 of chapter 7, the next verse is 8, 12, where we're in. Now, it's my understanding that Jesus is still within the context of the Feast of Booths, and now he makes this second statement, I am the light. Well, we talked about the water, but there was a second element to the Feast of Booths. The second element that they would do is that they would light these large candles to remember that God went before them as a pillar of light and guided them out of captivity into freedom. And so they would light these candles to remember what God had done. And what does Jesus say then after that happens? I am the light. That which pulled you out of captivity, that which led you through the wilderness, I am that light. I am the one that can lead you out of the captivity of sin and death. But there's other allusions in the other passages that we see. In Psalm 27, at 1, it says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? In Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, there's this promise, but for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, S-U-N, shall rise with healing in its wing. Well, who is that Son? 
It's the Son, S-O-N. Even in the beginning of John, we saw this, uh, John 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The other illusion is the I am statement, that Christ is making himself one with God. That's what John 1 already has done, that the word was God. And John and Jesus is saying that I am the light of life. This is a fitting message as we're, we're talking about Christmas that we are celebrating that the light has come into darkness throughout all of the Old Testament. What was the hope of humanity? That someday this light would appear, that something would come to conquer the darkness. And what does Christ here claim? I am the one you have been waiting for. I am the one that comes to conquer darkness. But then he talks about the response He says, whoever follows me. So the first one is universal, his statement, I am the light. The second part, though, is conditional. There's a choice that needs to be made. Whoever follows me, not all, but a specific people, whoever follows me. It's an open invitation, but it's also a universal promise. Whoever follows me. Don't miss the illusion here again. What did the people of Israel do with the pillar of light that went before them? They followed it. What would have happened to them if they had neglected to follow that light? They would have been plunged in darkness and surely would have died. Jesus says, follow me. I am your light. And this is why, this is the result. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is the greatest promise for all of humanity. This fixes the problem of sin. The darkness is no longer hopeless. So if you're thinking about the quadrant, these four four different areas, Jesus is talking about this top left one, the one of in Christ and hopeful. If we are in Christ, if we follow this light, then we are full of hope because he tells us that we will no longer walk in darkness, but we will have the light of life, no longer death and darkness, but life and light. This is what John started with his, his gospel with. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. It gives light to everyone, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Because what is the implication that Jesus is saying when he says, I am the light, and if you follow me, you will no longer be in darkness? What's the implication? That we are in darkness. Why are we in darkness? We've already talked about this. Because of the fall. 
We talked about this back when we were in John 3, that before we talk about the hope of the light, before we talk about the blessing that God so loved the world, we need to understand why that's such a good thing. The same thing applies here. The reason we are so excited about this light must be because we understand that we are in darkness because of our sin, because of our rebellion. In John 3.19, Jesus tells us about the reality that this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. But there's that promise that he can take us out of this. We were saying earlier, he will carry our curse and death he'll reverse. This is our hope. If you are in Christ, you are full of hope. Jesus is describing that being in him is being full of hope. Christ's light gives hope in the darkness for all who follow him. But we go from this first quadrant of hope And now we see the next quadrant, because there's a dispute. Verse 13, So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. You are a liar. That's what they're saying. What you say is not true. These are harsh claims. Now here's the question. Why are they so indignant? Why are they all up in arms with what Jesus said? Did Jesus say something disparaging? Did Jesus say something that was hopeless? No, he said something that was full of hope. I'm your solution. And yet the Pharisees hate it. Why do they hate what he says so much? Because it threatens them. It threatens everything that they believe. Which area of our chart would you put the Pharisees in? Do you think that the Pharisees, you don't have to answer, but thinking through this, do you think that the Pharisees have hope? They do. Why are the Pharisees doing everything that they do? Why do the Pharisees follow all of these laws and then some? Why do they have this whole system in place? Is it because they think that it's, well, we're still going to die and go to hell? No, they have hope. But do they have Christ? No. So if you think about our quadrant, they're in that section of without Christ, but still hopeful. And yet what Jesus just said to them, they understand the implication of what Jesus said. Jesus saying, I am the light, and whoever follows me will no longer walk in darkness. What Jesus is saying is that if you don't follow me, you are in darkness. If you don't follow me, you don't have hope. That's threatening to them. This is something that we're going to encounter when you go through the process of evangelism. You are going to find people who are threatened by what you say and are going to fight against it. Why? Because what you're telling them is that if you don't have Christ, you don't have hope. Wait a second, Jesus. We don't like that. So what do they do? They're going to start giving arguments back. What's the argument? You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. You can't say that about yourself. You can't bear witness about yourself. It's not true. You are a liar. Now there's two ironies with what they're doing 
against them. The first is that Jesus has already dealt with what they're saying. Back in chapter 5, uh, verse 31 and 32, Jesus said this. Jesus preempted the argument by saying this. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Does that sound pretty familiar to what the Pharisees are saying right now? Hey, you, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. But Jesus already said, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. But then there's verse 32. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. And who is that person? It's the Father. Jesus goes through in John chapter 5 all of these different witnesses. Jesus has already dealt with this argument. The irony that they would bring this up against him when Jesus has already dealt with it. But the second irony is just the nature of light. Light always bears witness to itself. You can't have a light that doesn't bear witness to itself. What happens when you turn on a light? Light comes out. There's light. What, you couldn't say, no, wait a second, light. Let someone else shine the light for you. Because if you're shining the light, then you're bearing witness about yourself. You're saying that you're the one that gives us light. That's not fair. So, so let someone else shine the light for you. That's not how light works. Light always bears witness to itself. So for Jesus to come and not bear witness to himself would not be the light. But Jesus is the light. And so he bears witness about himself. But their dispute against Jesus is that he is not true. Because if Jesus is not true, then there is not hope in Christ. Jesus is wanting everyone to be in that quadrant top left of in Christ with hope. But they're saying, no, you're wrong, you're lying. And if you're a liar, then there's no hope in you. So Jesus is going to go on the defensive. Jesus is going to explain who exactly he is. John 8, verse 14 through 18. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come, came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it, 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 it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. If you look at these verses, 14 through 18, there's a word that keeps on showing up three different times. What did the Pharisees say that Jesus was not? You are not true. And yet Jesus is now going to say three different times that he is true. And he's going to give three different ways that they can see that he is true. He's going to show them that I am who I say I am. What I speak is true. His first one that he does is that my testimony is true. Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. One of the things that you're going to see throughout this passage is the amount of contrast. Now, one of the greatest examples of contrast that we have is light and darkness. 
Sometimes if you uh, take a picture with your phone and then you go and edit it, the, one of the options is to boost or remove contrast. And when you do that, if you ever try that, what you're doing is you're ad either adding or removing light. The whole concept of light and darkness is the element of contrast. And throughout this passage, Jesus is going to keep showing, this is who I am, this is who you are. My testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know. You think you can tell me I'm not true? You think that your witness against me is true? It's not. You don't know what I know. I know where I'm from. I know that I came from the Father. I know where I'm going. I'm going back to the Father. I know who I am. He then says, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. Now we've already talked about this in last chapter that Jesus talks about their bad judgment. And we saw all the people that use bad judgment. And he says, judge not according to appearances, but judge with right judgment. He tells them, judge with right judgment. Well, what is that judgment? It's judgment according to the Father. It's judgment according to what God has revealed. Not judgment necessarily of giving a verdict, but of seeing things rightly. He says, look, you don't judge seeing everything. You judge according to the flesh. You judge with a finite mind. You can't see all of reality. And Jesus then says something that's difficult for us because then he says, I judge no one. And I'm, I'm going to quickly go through that. On one side, what Jesus is talking about right there is he does not judge like them. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one like that. I judge no one according to the flesh. That's what Jesus is doing here. But I do want to just briefly go a little bit more into that because one of the biblical theologies that we, we come across in John is this theme of judgment. Back in John 3, that the Son of Man was sent not to condemn the world, but to save the world. But then he says, but this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, but the darkness runs from that light. Well, now, wait a second. You don't come to judge. You don't come to condemn. But then in the next sentence, it says you do. And there's actually multiple times through John that that reality happens where Jesus says, I don't judge, but this is the judgment. Here's what we need to understand, that there is a time element to judgment. But Christ's main mission when he came to this earth was not for judgment. If Christ came to judge the world, would he have come as a man? Did he need to come as a man in order to have a foundation to judge us? No. He could judge us as God. Who, did, who sinned against God? Man. And we sinned against him, not against another man. We sinned against God. God's basis for judgment is the fact that we sinned against him. He can judge us as God. So, but it, that isn't the main reason he came. He didn't come to judge. He came to save. His first coming was for our salvation. That's why he came as a man. That's why we celebrate Christmas. 
The fact that he came as a man, that he humbled himself by taking on human form so that he could pay our judgment, he could remove our condemnation. That's why he came. But does that mean that he will never judge? No. There is a time where he will return in judgment. That means that this is urgent. How we respond to Christ. This is, there is judgment coming. His first coming was not for judgment. But how you respond to his first coming is the basis for how you are judged in his second coming. If you do not respond rightly to what he has done in his first coming, in coming as a human, in paying the price for us, in defeating death, if you do not believe that, then at his second coming you will be judged. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Jesus sees things according to the Father. He sees the reality. My testimony is true. My judgment is true. The third is that his witness is true. He says, in your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. That's what your law says, the law of Moses, that if there's two witnesses that say the same thing, it's true. And now Jesus is going to show that he has that second witness. I am the one who bears witness about myself. There's the first witness. And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Jesus has both witnesses. Jesus is true. Now, this is why, why, the question that we ask is, why does Jesus go through this whole defense against them? Why not just leave them? Not that, you know what? They have hope. The Pharisees had hope. That's a good thing. We, we like hope. We want people to have hope. Why would Jesus go about the process of trying to destroy their hope? Because misplaced hope is still hopeless. Misplaced hope is still hopeless. You, they might think that they have hope, but it's not real. It's just a feeling. It's vanity. That's what we've talked about, that Jesus does not coexist. Why? Because if your hope is not in Christ, you do not have hope. Jesus wants them to have hope. How did he start the whole paragraph? He started with hope. But then they revealed that they did not have that hope, that their hope was in something else. And so what Jesus does is he shows them that they actually do not have hope. But they're still not there. They still want to show. They have doubt and disbelief, so they're going to go against them. And so what they say is, they said to him, therefore, where is your father? Because Jesus just said, I have another witness. I have the father as my witness. And they ask, where is your father? But what they demonstrate is that their disbelief by showing they do not know Jesus and they do not know the father, and that's the damning evidence. Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Now, understand this. That is a really big deal, what Jesus just said to them. The whole foundation of Israel's Hope is what? That they have a relationship with the Father. That God is their Father too. 
That's their hope, that our dad is going to save us because of how good we were. We earned the father's salvation. We know the father. In fact, the rest of chapter 8 is going to deal with this theme of the father, that he's going to talk to them and say, you don't have the father. You think that the God is your father? Your father is the devil. Jesus just told them, you don't know me. You don't know the father. The whole foundation for your hope isn't there. The fact that you think you can have hope without me is hopeless. But they're still in denial because they say, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. But they tried. Throughout the whole chapter of chapter 7 and chapter 8, over and over again, it talks about them trying to arrest him, and yet they couldn't. Why? Because the hour had not yet come. Because the Father still was in control. That's something for us to have hope in. That no one disrupts the plans of God. God is always in control. They continued to seek to destroy him. They wanted his death. But they failed. In this first paragraph, we've seen that Jesus first talks about that first quadrant of there is hope in Christ. And then he addresses people that have hope without Christ. But what he shows them is that does not exist. We can think that there's four quadrants, but one of them doesn't really exist. There is no quadrant of hope without Christ. And that's where he goes in the next part. He says, these, um, so he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. If we look at this claim, it's the same pattern as the, last state, uh, as the statement in the uh, previous paragraph. Here's the reality. I am going away. Is there anything that humanity can do to stop that from happening? No. In fact, they're, that's what they're trying to make happen. But Jesus tells them with finality, I am going away. This is what Isaiah 55, the warning is, seek him while he, yet while he can still be found. Jesus tells them, I am going away. And this is the response that you're going to have. You will seek me. Now, when we talk about this, there's different times that the Bible uses seeking. Uh, Jeremiah 29, uh, 13 says, you will seek me and you will find me. And yet here in chapter 7 and chapter 8, Jesus says, you will seek me and you will not find me. Is the Bible contradicting itself? No. What Jesus is talking about is that you are seeking the wrong Jesus. You are seeking the wrong Savior. That you are seeking wrongly, therefore you will never find me. If you seek a Savior that's not Christ, you will not find that Savior. If you seek Jesus, who's not the Savior, you will not find that Jesus. You will seek me. That's the response. But the result is you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. First statement in the first paragraph, full of hope. This, par this statement in this paragraph, hopeless. What quadrant is he talking about now? The reality of you are without me, and therefore you are hopeless. Jesus is making it very clear that without Christ, you are without hope. That's the reality. You're going to seek me. You're going to seek other ways of save saving yourself. You're going to place your hope in those things, but the reality is there is no hope. 
You're going to die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Why? Because you are sinful. We are sinful. We are separated from God. We cannot go to where God is. Now, this leads to some confusion on the Jews' part. So it says, so the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? The irony is that if you compare the response to his first statement, they have all of this, they're, they're up in arms and say, you're a liar. After a statement full of hope, Jesus gives them a completely hopeless statement and they're more just confused. Where I, what, will he kill himself? But the other irony is how often they come so close to the truth. Uh, in chapter 7, uh, one of the things that Jesus says is, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am going, you cannot come. They say, what? Is he going to go and to the dispersion? Is he going to go out and preach to the Greeks? Yes, and they will find him. And then later they're like, oh, but doesn't the Messiah come from Bethlehem, from the line of David? The line of David? Yes, and Jesus did. And here, where, where, where can, can we not find you? What, are you going to kill yourself? Yes. Now, I'm not talking about in the sense of suicide, but Christ allowed himself to be offered, not as suicide, but as sacrifice. He gave up his life. Why can't we find you? Because I gave my life for you. But because they don't understand, and I think that their confusion is legitimate, Jesus doesn't leave them there. Does Jesus, is, is God's goal, is Christ's goal, just to get us to that, that bottom quadrant of, hey, you are without hope and you are because you are without me? No, that's part of the process. He wants to get you there so that he can get you to that top quadrant of full of hope, full of Christ. But you need to go through that progression. If you still have hope in anything else for your salvation, you can't put your hope in Jesus. You can't have two contradictory hopes. Either your hope is in Christ to save you or your hope is in other things. You can't say, I have hope in these other things and hope in Jesus. No, that's not how it works. That's why Jesus goes through this. No, if you don't have me, you don't have hope. But he wants to take them to a place of hope. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Look at all the contrasts. I am who I say I am, but you are who I say you are too. He shows them the hopelessness of their situation. You will die in your sins. But there's one word in there that shows that what he really wants is to give hope unless. You would die in your sins unless. Unless you believe that I am. In the Greek, that's all it is. Unless you believe that I am. If we don't believe in Christ that he is the I am, you will die in your sins. Friends, this isn't this isn't something where we look at, oh, Jesus, Jesus is being such a jerk. He's taking away their hope. He's le no, he's showing them, he's not taking away their hope. He's showing them that they have no hope so that he can give them true hope. You cannot place your hope in Jesus while you still have hope in any other salvation. So he tells them, unless you believe that I am he. So here's their curiosity. So they said to him, who 
are you? Now, this is the same pattern, right? That, that Jesus did a statement, then they had a dispute, then Jesus offered more explanation, then they asked a question in the first one. Where is your father? Same pattern here. They ask, who are you? Now, here's the irony. How many times has Jesus told them who I am? I am the light of life. Where I am going, you do not know, you cannot go. I am the one who bears witness to you. I am going away. Where I am going, you cannot come. If you do not believe that I am he. Over and over and over, Jesus has told them who he is, and yet they still ask, who are you? But Jesus shows compassion. Jesus shows that what he truly wants is to give them hope. They said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. I know who you are. I know your condition, but I know who I am, and that's what I've been telling you, and the Father knows who I am. But they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. They don't understand who he's talking about, and so Jesus continues to t explain. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. What is he talking about? His death. But John does this really interesting thing where John uses terms in multiple ways. Not only is, does lifted up describe his death, it also describes his ascension, his victory. He is going to be lifted up. That process starts with his death, but it finishes when he is glorified before the Father. But how does that work? When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he? Here's the reality. All people know Christ on the basis of his crucifixion. Some choose to know Christ through his crucifixion in this life. But all will know who Christ is from the base, on the basis of his crucifixion eventually. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. When I am lifted up, you will know. But that element of when you will know it makes all the difference if it is within this life or the next. You will know. But if you do not choose to place your faith in that now, then the judgment is coming. I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He's giving us more foundation for our hope. Everything that I do is united with the Father. It is with the Father's authority. It's through the Father's power. We are one. This is never going to fail. This is our hope. You cannot know Jesus apart from the cross. Everyone will know Jesus according to the cross. Know him according to the cross now, while there is still time. And it finishes with the confession. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. They went from that bottom quadrant, and they went to that top quadrant. 
They had no hope, and then Christ revealed himself, and they are now full of hope. Where are you on that graph? Many people think that they have hope without Christ, but I, I hope that you've seen in this passage that quadrant, as much as I say there's four categories, there's really not. There's really only two, and we're going to go through that. But, but first of all, on one side, there's just two sides. If you are without Christ, you can't be in that top area of hopeful without Christ. That doesn't exist. You might feel like that exists, but the reality is there is no hope without Christ. The only side without Christ is hopeless. But we want to be in that other side. So are you seeking hope outside of Christ? That's hopeless. Understand that it's hopeless. But once you understand that it's hopeless without Christ, then believe in him. That's the transformational intent of this passage. Believe, understand that you have no hope, and place your hope so you can be full of hope in Christ. But what if you're already in that top quadrant, as many of you are, that you have hope in Christ? Let the world know of this hope. I went to that funeral, and what did the widow say? Give us hope. That's what the humanity is crying for. We have that hope. Give it to them. But you've probably noticed that we've not addressed one of the quadrants. What about hopeless in Christ? Let's be honest. Christmas seasons can sometimes be really hard. All of the things that have gone wrong in your life, and it can feel hopeless. But just as there's only one quadrant on the other side, there's really only one on this side too. Hopeless in Christ doesn't exist. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying, oh, you're, don't, you don't feel that way. And, and it's a, what I'm saying is those feelings are a lie. There is no one in Christ who is hopeless. When we are in Christ, we are hope-filled. We might forget we might re not realize that reality, but our reality of being in Christ is full of hope. Now, here's something, here's why that happens. And this might sound weird to you, but hope is something of the flesh. Now, that seems a little weird because we're like, wait a second, are you saying it's, it's sinful? No, what I'm saying is that the only time we need hope is in this age of death. Once we are in heaven, we don't need hope anymore. Everything will be reality. There will be nothing we are hoping for in heaven. Everything will be there. Faith will be turned to sight. But because hope is something of the flesh, it means it's something we struggle with. We forget. Three years ago, I got one of those other messages, but this one was much more direct that was the worst message I ever got. It was the message that Hadassah had passed away. Hadassah was uh, uh, my niece that we were in the process of adopting, and we were in the final stages, and she had heart issues, and she passed away in Brazil. That message, humanly speaking, is a message of no hope. And yet when we went down Instead of the funeral where I just went, where everything was a reminder of the hopelessness, the funeral I went to in Brazil was full of hope. Everything we did was full of hope because we knew that we were in Christ. Christ. 
Now, since that, have there been times where we have struggled, where Hannah, myself, have struggled with that hope? Is the hope still there? Because how does this happen? Sure. But we have set up things to remind us of that hope. One of the things that we do is we decorate for Christmas on the anniversary of her death every year. Why? Because Christmas is our hope. We put lights around our tree because Christ is our light in the darkness. We remind ourselves of the truth. We have a memorial box in our home of different ways that God has answered prayers. Why? Because sometimes we feel hopeless. But Christ is always our hope. If you're in that quadrant of hopeless in Christ, I just want you to know that I understand feeling that way, but it's not true. I'm not taking away and saying, oh, you're lying to me. What I'm saying is that you need to remind yourself of the truth in Christ. That if we are in Christ, we are never hopeless. We are always hope-filled. Christ's light gives hope in the darkness for all who follow him. Invite the worship team to come up. Um, but one of the things I just want to encourage you to do, if you, you have those things that have gone through trials and, and it's hard to remember the hope, set up reminders for yourself. Look at the Christmas lights that we have. Remember the hope that we have in Christ.